Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. If you're someone who listens to this podcast, chances are good that you're well acquainted with the rock and roll revolution of the 1960s. For a generation, rock and roll defined youth culture in the West and was an integral part of the political, social, and cultural revolutions occurring at the same time. For many, rock and roll represented freedom, undoing the shackles imposed by previous generations and doing one's own thing. Now, I'm sure this isn't news to you, but have you ever wondered how the rock and roll explosion of the 60s reverberated around the world, beyond Europe and North America? For several years now, I have. And I wanted to speak to my guest today to learn more about how the extremely poor and newly independent nation of India experienced the rock and roll revolution of the 60s and 70s. Siddharth Bhatia is an esteemed Indian journalist and the author of India Psychedelic, the story of a rocking generation. In the book, Mr. Bhatia shares the never-before-told story of the Indian rock music scene of the 60s and 70s. According to Mr. Bhatia, it was not the music that was important, but instead the fact that Indians were ready to break free from the traditionally conservative Indian culture and society and assert their own voice. The impact of the Beatles was deeply felt by young Indians, and for many, rock and roll represented a journey towards self-discovery and an attempt to break free from age-old Indian attitudes and values. In today's episode of Travels in Music, Mr. Bhatia tells me how rock and roll changed the lives of young Indians, what it was like trying to survive as an Indian rock band in the 60s and 70s, and the many challenges faced by Indian rock musicians. We also talk about Led Zeppelin's visit to India, the modern Indian rock scene, broader themes in Indian history, as well as Mr. Bhatia's groundbreaking work as the co-founder of the award-winning website The Wire, which has quickly become one of the most important voices in Indian political news. So relax, brew yourself a cup of chai, and enjoy sitting in on my fascinating conversation with the journalist and author Siddharth Bhatia. And please forgive the occasional car horns and birds in the background, as my guest was speaking from his flat in Mumbai, a notoriously boisterous, however beautiful city. To help uh, set the stage a little bit, I was hoping you could you could start by talking a little bit about what India was like in the 1960s, because I think it's an important point to make, and it was obviously so different compared to modern India. And so, for example, as a young person in a city like Bombay in the 60s, how, how did you discover rock and roll? Like, like how would how would you acquire it? How would you hear it? How would you listen to it? Well, to begin with, I was very small in the 60s, so my book uh, has drawn upon others' memories. But my own memories uh, are from the uh, early to mid-70s, which is the second, I mean, my book spans from 1963 to 76. So the 60s part is what I interviewed a lot of people. The 70s part is a bit of personal memory. But I can tell you that... uh, um, in the 60s, 
uh, India was uh, beginning to uh, close economically. Uh, it was becoming uh, not just, uh, I mean, it was a, a democratic country, but social, uh, economically we were closing down. There were a lot of rules and regulations. Import was uh, uh, difficult only because uh, the, the country had no foreign exchange to pay uh, for its imports. So it was a difficult time. And, you know, musical uh, instruments or records were not a priority at all. Um, we had one branch of uh, EMI in India, which manufactured, uh, because uh, EMI is a worldwide organization, so they manufactured only EMI records. So you could get some, a few of them, but the market was so small that it was not worth uh, printing them. Or uh, So... It's dominated, you know, by Hindi music, Hindi film music and language film music. And then next is uh, Indian classical. So Western classical and Western rock were very, very tiny niches. So it was difficult to get. The import duty on things like guitars was about over 300%. So even that was very difficult to get. So on top of it... Uh, Indian radio did not play Western music because of some misguided uh, notion that uh, we should not uh, uh, encourage Western culture, uh, which was not really a government policy. It was just the policy of the minister in charge. And so the Indian young uh, fan of, let's say, the Beatles or anybody else had to tune into Voice of America, the BBC and uh, Radio Ceylon, which was next door and had a very powerful transmitter. Radio Ceylon would be in Sri Lanka, but had a very powerful transmitter. So that's how uh, it was. And yet, as uh, I have explained, uh, young people managed to listen to some great songs and copy them. This I'm talking about the 60s. By the 70s, the situation had improved. But they copied them. They got the guitar made locally. Uh, they got drum sets uh, assembled. Uh, they got uh, amps which were made from old valve radios, and uh, there they went. They set up groups which looked like the Beatles. So why why did you decide to write this book? Because you've written mainly, I would say, about uh, politics in your career. Um, so why why did you think it was important to write India Psychedelic? So I'm a political journalist, yes, and I have been writing on politics for a long, long time. But uh, I am a great... Uh, aficionado and fan of popular culture and I think through popular culture one can explain societies, one can explain nations. Uh, it was, uh, I, I think that I would say that there were, two, there were two parts to this. One is that I wanted to explain what India was at that time. We have very few reference books about uh, decades, about histories, about contemporary histories. We are very strong in school, we teach uh, old history but not contemporary history. So I wanted to explain contemporary history through the device of popular culture. That was one. Two, uh, it was a little bit of a tribute, a love letter, if you will, on the generation uh, I grew up in and the one before me, because I think that was a liberal time uh, in India, despite uh, economic uh, controls, uh, despite the fact that we could not get um, imported goods, uh, imagine, um, you know, you're not getting all the goods that youngsters, let's say in Britain or United States especially, can take for granted. Um, you know, even simple things like clothes, fashion. 
uh, instruments, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And yet, how did Indian youngsters from the big cities become part of this wide global community? They went uh, on strikes. They wore those clothes. They wore those jeans. They put, uh, you know, lengthen, uh, their hair was long. How did they do it? It fascinated me that you're not getting magazines and newspapers into the country beyond a point. There's no television. There's no internet, obviously. Radio is controlled. And records and instruments are difficult to come by. And yet, every city had a group of youngsters, when more than a group, an entire generation of youngsters who echoed their counterparts anywhere in the West. In the 60s, there were riots on American campuses and in Paris. And there were restlessness in India. There was a whole uh, wave of leftist politics in the country. How did that happen? So that fascinated me. So I felt that that was a very liberal, open-minded generation. And that was my tribute to it. So it's, you know, coming together of these two impulses. And of course, I love rock music. What, uh, what was the first rock music that you heard in, in the 70s when you were a little older? Like, what, uh, what were some of your favorite acts? You know, well, my uh, father was a great fan of uh, the older, he was not uh, into rock music, but he was a great fan of the older uh, uh, singers and musicians like uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, uh, etc. And uh, he particularly liked, I mean, he was uh, very open to uh, Western influences in his life. And uh, I think I must have... uh, heard, uh, that's a good question, but I have a very strong memory of uh, getting from a friend of mine a record. You know, the record players were pretty, uh, shall we say, primitive at that time. Uh, But I got a record uh, player, which was a very basic one, as a gift. And then a friend of mine gave me an LP to listen to uh, strictly on, uh, you know, strictly as a loan for a couple of days, and I heard Let It Be. Now, obviously, I had heard, not Let It Be, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'm just trying to remember that. But it was a Beatles album, and obviously I'd heard a lot before that. And then I went into into university, and a friend of mine had just come back from America, and he said, guess what? I brought back great, uh, a lot of records. This was in the early 70s, a lot of records. Would you like to borrow my doors? And I have a distinct memory of that. So, uh, you know, I can't pin down the exact song or the album, but I have a pretty good idea that the Beatles, the doors, and the others had entered into my consciousness from a pretty early age. I think I must have been 14 or 15. And um, by 16 or 17, I think I had heard quite a lot because I fell in with a group of people who were pretty um, enterprising and they got a lot of records and uh, they uh, used to play it. So we used to get together at someone's home and uh, listen to it. Also, my college uh, had a, uh, the, one of the biggest bands in the city and the lead singer was one of the best known lead singers in Bombay of the time, Nandu Bende. And so he was a college, uh, he played in the college band. So, you know, Every time there was a college party, you had him up on the stage. So it is a lot of influence coming into my system. I think if you have read my book, you'll also know that I talk about uh, beat contests, which were uh, 
the yeah which were uh, contest for uh, beat groups uh, or uh, pop groups or rock groups and by i think 1970 or 71 a couple of them had already taken place they were annual affair and uh, i i don't know how but managed to get a ticket for it very very difficult to get but i did manage uh, must be some kindly source and uh, went and saw a lot of these so you know how things get into your consciousness um it may not be hard rock it may not be the real thing but it's coming to you from a lot of sources uh, i think by the time i was around 18 or 19 i was pretty well versed in uh, what was going on at that time so what what was your research process like for this book because it it seems i think i read that that you had difficulty finding a lot of the primary source materials like these uh indian rock music mags from from the 60s and you often had trouble actually tracking these these musicians down um so just if you could tell me a little bit about your research process so let me tell you how the book uh, came about uh i was talking to a friend of mine who used to run a magazine called time out the bombay edition and uh, i told him i said you know i remember uh, years ago uh, uh an incident about these two uh, musicians uh, hippy looking white musicians landing up in bombay and walking into a local uh, disco and uh, being uh, um, they were stopped from entering till somebody thought he recognized them took them in and then this guy who uh, took them in asked them a question and said are you by any chance uh, rock musicians and they said yes my name is jimmy page and this is rob plant or vice versa <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, and the disco was packed it was one of those really grungy uh, down market uh, low rent kind of places full of um, haze and smoke and uh, you know there's a kind of place where you could walk in just by paying a few rupees and uh, they said but would you play for us and they said yes so they played a set so i was telling this friend of mine i said you know i have a memory of this but this happened a long time ago and he said if you can track down the story we'll publish it so i spent the next 4 months tracking down the story talking to people who were there sent an email to uh, led zeppelin obviously got no reply sent an email to their manager got a reply found out why they had come here when they had come here and on the way uh, you know they were also heading out to uh, australia plus they came here to also try their hand at uh, you know led zeppelin uh, I don't know I'm sure you know your rock history they were not liked by critics a lot in those days yes but they were experimenting a lot and so they wanted to try out local music along with their own music Jimmy Page was very keen he was learning the sitar so I tracked down the entire story and then this friend of mine said you know this looks like something more so I said okay that this idea has been in my head for a long time that I should write about the 70s So because I had already met a few people there was a starting point and then I started and then A led to B led to C the internet helped a lot um people did not want to talk not because they were they didn't want to talk but they was, they said we didn't do anything great uh what's the big deal we're just college students why why the fuss people were you know migrated to australia to uh, vancouver um 
Fortunately, barring one or two, they were still around. You know, obviously, one or two had passed on, but they were still around because everyone was in their like early 60s or something, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, they said, sure, we'll talk. So I had to persuade them. However, there was nothing but nothing available on the internet. Nothing. There was nothing available institutionally. I went to the organizers of the Simla Beat contest, which held it for five or six years. They had no records in their company archive. I went to the junior statesman office in Calcutta to say, can you give me old copies? They they had either thrown them away or hidden them. Nothing was available. It only goes to show how casually we treat our uh, contemporary history. And then, so with the kindness of friends and strangers, I managed to pick up a lot of things. A lot of people have said, oh, but you have missed out this and you missed out that. And I keep saying that, you know, this is not an encyclopedia. This is a snapshot of a generation. So the, if you know, the name of the book is The Story of a Rocking Generation. It's a generational story. How we reached, what was happening, and where did it all end? And it has a definite end point because India had a political emergency in 1975. And so that's when it starts fading out due to a variety of reasons. So I had a very clear framework in mind. Plus, I was writing about India. So there was a lot of political uh, uh, activity in the backdrop. There was a lot of social activity. It's not just the fashions and the music changing. It's also India shifting. Uh, there's uh, extreme left politics. There is, uh, there's protests. There is, um, you know, intergenerational conflict. Uh, there is a magazine cover uh, which I uh, unearthed about young, uh, the new young generation, which is against everything, God, religion and parents. I thought that was fascinating. So, you know, the usual story that you might have in any other part of the world, but this was India. So it was like everyone says, it's sex, drugs, uh, drugs and rock and roll. We had drugs and rock and roll. There's no <laughs> Right. Nobody wanted to talk about it, but you know, implicitly, you you know what's going on. Right, right. So what, what surprised you the most during the research and writing process during this book? Like, like what, what did you learn? I learned uh, many things, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just like to bring two uh, or three things to the fore. One is that I learned that India in the 60s and 70s was extremely liberal. That's very, very important because we, as a country, are at this moment passing through an ultra-conservative uh, time. Uh, and so uh, I was pleased that my impressions were borne out by talking to people who said we had a very easy-going, laissez-faire, um, liberal uh, time. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there were no uh, controls. Of course, there were. And that doesn't mean that you know, um, uh, there were no, I mean, there were conservative elements at that time too, but India was a very liberal country and the youth were pushing boundaries and that really cheered me up and that was a great finding. The second finding is that uh, 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 philosophically, you can't keep anything down. If people want to get to it, they will get to it. So it's a story of enterprise. It's a story of... Uh, you know, determination, and none of those guys made big money on it. They were not even getting, um, you know, meager amount. They were doing it for fun. 
They were maybe perhaps putting in their own funds to set up a band, but they were doing it. So it's a story of determination, where to get the guitar, how do you get it, how do you put it, a band together, um, how do you explain to your parents that you're going out at night to play. So there's a kind of social generational uh, shift happening. So, uh, and I was very, very happy to know that, uh, which I knew instinctively, but that a country that at that time, uh, which everyone looks back and says, oh my God, we were really, really tightly controlled economy, but we were an extreme, a country with an extremely free mind, which allowed all kinds of ideas to flow in. So uh, is that, that I, was, I was able to create that history recreate that history of an India which was in some ways like anywhere else in the world. So when people say globalization, I said, look, it's been happening much before we think it's been happening. Yeah, that's that's one of the impressions I got from your book that, that I was not entirely aware of before is that it seems that young Indians, particularly in the, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, like they were aware that something was, was really happening in the West in terms of um, sexual awakening and psychedelic rock music and really a lot of culture and political upheaval. And they really felt like they were a part of that. Well, yes. Uh, see, look at the uh, stories of Enterprise, for example. I've given a couple of instances of musicians who packed their bags and on a you know, women of prayer, and uh, they just landed up in uh, London or in New York and said, we are going to try our luck. Now, that counts, uh, calls for a lot of, lot of determination and, you know, a, a kind of aggressive. Uh, to say that, you know, I don't care, India is not big enough to uh, hold a person like me. I want to be walking the streets of London. And that's important because getting a passport, getting a visa, getting um, the money, uh, the Indian government barely allowed you to take uh, 20 or $40 outside. So just landing up, playing along the way. There's the story of Bidu, who then went on to write Kung Fu Fighting, which all of us in the world have danced to. Yeah, of course. Uh, there's, the story of Asha, uh, there's the story of Asha Putli, who said, I'm not going to change my name. And I'm not going to be singing uh, Indian type of fusion music because I think I'm a jazz musician. And then she goes there and falls in with Andy Warhol's set. You know, these are fascinating stories. Then there is uh, the story of a musician in Calcutta who said, I'm going to start playing uh, rock music uh, with Bengali lyrics. Uh, at that time, everyone laughed at him. Today, this is the vogue in the, this country. Then, uh, and then he went on to become a, a far-left uh, revolutionary. So I thought these were fantastic stories. Um, and that no matter what you do, the young will find a way. I think that really, for me, was the great learning. Mm. And uh, it, uh, it uh, you know, I, I'm sure if you uh, have read the book closely, you'll see there's a very optimistic, cheery note to the whole thing. It's not about how terrible India was, but how wonderful it was. Right, right. What, what sort of impact did the Beatles have on young Indians? Because I find this really interesting. I think a lot of people aren't really aware that the Beatles did have a definite impact on India. So the Beatles, uh, when their first uh, single came out, I think in October 1962, 
um, it uh, was heard on uh, BBC Radio and it was played locally on Radio Ceylon and uh, I think it blew the minds of everybody who heard it. The record uh, didn't make it to the to the top 10, but it blew everybody's mind. And in March 63, their first album uh, was, you know, created waves everywhere and also in India. So it really speaking, I think the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who must have come at the same time, uh, are changed the world for everybody because it created not just the pop rock revolution, but it showed Indians as much as Japanese and Koreans and Africans and Latin Americans and everybody that, hey, you can write your own music, you can sing it and you can compose it and you can be a cool looking band. And so uh, the Beatles did that at a more philosophical level. At the more kind of specific level, they came to India in the 60s. A lot of Indians went to see them at Rishikesh. They were there for a while. Uh, there's a story of a guy who even managed to get inside. Um, there's a story of a guy who uh, wrote them, wrote Apple Music a letter. And uh, by the time he got the reply, his family had already booked, uh, um, you know, a, a shipping. <laughs> they had already booked a seat on a ship to move to Australia. They were migrating. Um, you know, there's also the whole social story of the Anglo-Indians, the Indians and uh, European mix children. So they were, uh, they said, India is not for us, we want to move to Australia. So he got a letter, but it was too late. So the Beatles were in and out of people's lives. I think also the Beatles, perhaps their love for India uh, and their visit here and George Harrison also must have somewhere, though I haven't touched upon it, but I now looking back think, that it must have also somewhere given a kind of a booster to the confidence of youngsters to say, hey, this is legit. It's not that we are just mimicking what's going on in the West. We are writing our own songs, but we are copying what's going on. We are doing cover versions. But if the Beatles find India cool, that's something. So, uh, and of course, the Beatles were followed by waves of hippies. And uh, so you know, there's a lot of intermingling. So I think the Beatles... Um, I have friends today who are from that generation who are obsessed with, <coughs> even now, they're in their mid-60s, arguing about which Beatles songs, song is better, what a Beatles song, what a particular word means. I think it's a lasting impact on all of us. Hmm. What, what has the reception of the book been like in India? Because I've heard you say, I think in another interview, that more young Indians than you initially thought um, are reading your book. Well, you know, I must tell you right in the beginning so that you don't get the wrong impression. Indian English books in India don't sell in their uh, hundreds of thousands. Uh, so uh, I think my publishers tell me it's done extremely well. Uh, I don't know what the numbers would be. But uh, I do know for a fact that all the radio interviews and media interviews I've done have been with uh, very young people who said, uh, this is unbelievably cool because A, it tells us about in India, which we didn't know about. And B, it, uh, I remember vaguely my mother saying she danced to uh, the Beatles or the, listened to the Who. And... Uh, uh, I didn't know that that was true. I thought it was one of my mother's or my father's stories. 
and they showed me photographs of themselves wearing bell bottoms. But hey, this is the real stuff. So there's been a lot of buying, a lot of reaction, a lot of feedback, queries. I keep getting, still getting messages. I have a Facebook page, which is absolutely untouched. I don't have the time, but I keep getting messages from people to say, I read your book and I'm really uh, amazed at what was going on at that time. I think what, what has touched most people, especially youngsters, is uh, that uh, this is about their country uh, and what was going on in their country. So, yes, I would say, of course, the old timers who are in the book and who know about that time have been buying it in large numbers. I mean, honestly... <laughs> There have been people who bought 10 copies at a time and asked me to autograph them, <laughs> which is always lovely for an author. But a lot of youngsters have bought it. Yeah, that must be gratifying. Because it's... it's it, is gratifying. Yeah. it is not paying, but it's gratifying. Right, right. Well, I think, I think you know, the overwhelming majority of books in the world are not selling in the hundreds of thousands anymore. It's a, yeah, it's a weird time for the publishing, publishing industry all over the world. Yes. I, I'd like to pick up on a, a very provocative point, a question you raised earlier that, that I also have been, um, have been pondering for some time now. I, I actually did research in India when I was in graduate school on yeah. uh, India, in the, India in the 1960s. And why, right. why is it so hard to find histories, like even like of, of since independence? It's difficult to find good histories of India in, in the past sort of 60, 70 years, and particularly the 1960s. There's very, very, very little. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that um, Indians don't, or Indian writers, don't really pay attention to the more recent Indian history? So, so there, I think there is an obvious answer to that, which you'll understand if you... Um, uh, you know, in India, uh, we have a very strange approach towards history. We think history is either ancient history or medieval history or colonial history or pre-independence, uh, the story of how India got its independence. So uh, it's not you uh, are looking for, a lot of people are looking for things. Suppose you were to write, a, want to write a history of, India during the emergency, which was an extremely significant occurrence in 1975, it would be almost impossible to get real first-hand or second-hand, even second-hand archival material. Why? Because it exists somewhere, but not in one place. So what would you look for? You would look for newspaper articles. The newspaper offices are uh, very difficult to penetrate. It's not available online. You can't even say I'm ready to pay because they will not put it online. So that's one. Two, uh, because of the uh, old-fashioned way of teaching history to schools and uh, in colleges, it still hasn't moved uh, to contemporary time. Thirdly, I then this I think this is my perception is that the, a country which thinks that you know we are a four thousand five thousand year civilization. We don't take contemporary history seriously at all. So it is, basically it boils down to we have no sense that contemporary history is history. You know, when I was researching and I said, let me just find out what was written about uh, pop music or rock music in the 50s, 60s, 70s in America, uh, I think I can easily rattle off some 40, 50 books, right? Um, the United States... Recently, I think about four or five years ago, got obsessed with the 50s for some reason. Uh, 
or the 60s really, and you can see it happening in pop culture. And we have tons and tons and tons of material coming out. Plays, um, television serials, movies, you know. So they have a great sense of what was happening in their country 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. We have none. We think history stopped in 1947 when India became independent. So anyone who sets out, I know that there are a lot of things going on at this moment, but anyone who sets out to research, good luck to them. They'll be pioneers, but they'll have it very, very difficult. I found after I wrote my book, there was a flurry of interest in the 60s and 70s rock music. And I suspect it was not because this book came out and people said, hey, there's much more to be done. But because people said, we have something ready-made, let's just lift it. So somebody's made a six-part TV serial interviewing everybody who's in my book. Hmm. Of course, they have not interviewed me, but uh, <laughs> it's all there. So right. this is the lazy way out, you know. So I don't know what you were looking for, but I can tell you that it's very, very difficult. It's extremely difficult to write on... Uh, on uh, I write, I've written a few books on old cinema, <clears throat> again, 40s and 50s. And it's very, very difficult getting people, tracking them down, getting people to revive their memories. And then after everything is done, to look for paper archival material. Very, very difficult. So I don't know what you're looking for, what subject, but it's going to be a tough ride. It's not impossible, but you've got to devote a lot of time. Well, it's actually very closely, uh, and this is several years ago, that I, I, I actually spent a couple of summers in Calcutta combing through old newspapers in one of the archives there. I, I actually, it, it, uh, it's very closely related to your research because I was writing about uh, Indian intellectuals' responses to the presence of the Beatles and the hippies and sort of the yeah, Western influence yeah, uh, in the 1960s. That's a book waiting to be written. I totally agree. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's a fascinating story. I might have to do a podcast on that very topic soon. And, um, and before, you know, yeah, you know, uh, it's not just the Beatles. Uh, it's what came before and after. Because just before the Beatles had come, a few years before that, the beat beats uh, poets had come, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's a beat poets, the Beatles, and you know the hippies. There is a continuum which you can build a wonderful story. I presume you've been to Rishikesh. Oh, uh, many times. Yeah, so so you know that there is. The, you know that the Beatles wrote a few songs. You know that George Harrison was the one person who retained his ties with India. Um, you know, uh, you know that there was the impact was far greater than just the music. That's an intellectual impact. But trust me, the Indian newspapers were not writing about these things those days at all. And uh, because they thought popular culture was not worth it, it was all politics and, um, you know, other things. And uh, so you won't. Get, so the 10 years of junior statesman JS magazine, which is impossible to get hold of, um, is your only first hand. I mean, your only newspaper source. Uh, otherwise, you have to go and, you know, plant yourselves in Rishikesh and talk to people. Yes, yes. I'm going to have to, to devote some, some more time to that. Um, moving forward a little bit, I know we don't have a lot of time left. I'd love to ask you just a, a couple more questions. 
What what are your thoughts on the current rock music scene in India today? Because I haven't been to the country since 2012, but it, it seems as an outsider looking in that there's been a lot more sort of activity, more bands being formed. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a trend or do you think that rock and roll is, is here to stay in India? The scene is much better if you were to look at it in terms of numbers, gigs, outlets. Um, I'm told that it's still very difficult to get, uh, you know, uh, sponsors. Um, and a lot of these guys are session, session musicians, you know, making ad jingles and things like that. Incidentally, none of those rock musicians that I wrote about ever did anything like commercial work. And that, I think, is a very notable uh, feature of the 60s and 70s. They did not do anything for Indian cinema, Hindi cinema, and they did not do anything for advertising. And uh, that means uh, there is some purity of objective, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, so these guys uh, do get a lot of work outside. Uh, there are now promoters, there are uh, festivals, there are gigs. Uh, so I think uh, I've been saying that in the next five to seven years, some Indian musician is going to make it big. Uh, there are uh, the other exciting thing, uh, which uh, if you type in, um, you know that I run something called The Wire, right? Of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. So The Wire did a story recently about these uh, young musicians, rappers who come from the wrong side of the tracks and are rapping in Hindi. So there's a lot of that happening, language rock. Um, there's, you know, metal bands. So there is much more activity. Uh, if they want the latest um, Strat uh, or um, synthesizer or any instrument, it's available in the shop across the road, more or less. Um, so there is a lot more happening. Opportunities have grown. Um, and I think that's very, very exciting. Now, about the quality of the music, I'm not a great metal fan, so I have nothing to say. Um, uh, <laughs> classic rock is it for me. Um, and uh, I like to, I, I'm really excited and I'm, I, I'm quite happy. I gave a lecture to a bunch of management students uh, some time ago and I asked them and they said, it's classic rock because everybody who goes to university has to listen to Pink Floyd. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, think I think that's that, true in universities all over the world. Exactly. Without which you can't study. Exactly. So, uh, you know, Pink Floyd and Pot have to go together. So <laughs> I, I think uh, the, the rock music scene is good. I think it's very good that 70s rock is still uh, very much uh, in uh, popular consciousness. Um, you know, you can have both. You can have Beyonce, you can have that. Beyonce is political, that was also political. So I like that. Uh, I think the Indian rock scene is very exciting and the fusions that are happening. Um, I'm not an authority on what's going on, but from what little I occasionally hear and listen to, I think it's pretty good. So I'm excited. Yeah. I think I've seen more Beatles, Pink Floyd, and Led Zeppelin shirts in India than I've seen in, in a lot of other places in the world. Yeah, and Indians love that stuff. Not surprising, not surprising. I think uh, the big bands um, are, uh, you know, of course, they didn't come to India to play till very recently, and then they were not. Led Zeppelin came, but not Led Zeppelin, uh, uh, Guns N' Roses came but it was without slash, but people went to see it anyway, because, you know, there is a sense, uh, and, you know, the, the Indian crowd, which knows it's rock music, is pretty, you know, they, 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 they know their stuff, 
Right. It's it's not as if the, 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 you know this is some kind of backwaters. The the guys who know their stuff know their stuff. There are columns on rock music in Indian papers. I mean, there you are. Yeah, absolutely. Shifting the focus a little bit before I let you go, you mentioned the wire. And uh, I'd like to congratulate you. I understand that you you just celebrated the one year anniversary of the wire. So congratulations. And won, um, won the award at the start of the year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's terrific. So for people who aren't familiar with it, and I guess this sort of might um, relate to a comment you meant you you made earlier about this sort of conservative period in Indian politics and society. But what what led you to founding the wire last year? So. Uh, this was, uh, I quit my last uh, regular job uh, four or five years ago, and I was freelancing and writing. Uh, yeah, I've been in journalism for a long time, so when I quit, I said I don't look feel like another job for a while. Uh, so I just got down to writing books, and uh, I was writing them, and uh, writing in a lot of, in the popular media. Uh, these two friends of mine also, uh, they, they had regular jobs, but by a strange coincidence, they too uh, left, left their jobs, very high-profile job. And uh, independently, we were all thinking that we must do something of our own because we felt digital had possibilities. But of course, there was a question of money and everything. And uh, we got talking and uh, found that we all had similar ideas. So we said, look, no, you're never going to have the perfect time, uh, the perfect budget, or the perfect uh, investment, uh, we should do something and start it. So putting in a bit of our resources and calling on a lot of favors from people who said, we'll write because we know who you are, we started it. Uh, what we, we think Indian journalism is passing through a very difficult phase and it's not fulfilling its task of uh, questioning truth to power, uh, speaking truth to power. We think society is turning conservative. We think you know there is a growing a bit of intolerance. So we felt that we are not doing anything brave. We are just practicing good old-fashioned journalism as it should be, which is free of corporate influence and which is free of government influence. So we started this as a not-for-profit. Uh, no uh, investment has come in so far. It's us running on empty and calling in favors. Uh, but we do have a little bit of capital, which we pay our writers and a bit of our staff. We don't take salaries. Um, and uh, one day when investment comes in, then the thing might change. But in a year, it's become a pretty strong brand. And now people come to read us because they know, and people write for us because they know that this is the platform for strong journalism. Um, and so The Wire has become quite successful, and I'm delighted to see that a few others have begun too, So, which means uh, you know, we are on the right track. Certainly, yes. And as, as someone who, uh, who cares about India and, and is a follower of Indian politics and society, it's, it's what I consider to be essential reading. And people can find it at thewire.in, right? Thewire.in, yes. Yes, perfect. Well, Mr. Bhatia, thank you so much for your time today. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. Okay.
Well, there you have it. There's my conversation with Siddharth Bhatia. And I'd just like to remind you that if you have any interest in India in the 1960s or just the history of rock music around the world, highly recommend you check out his book, India Psychedelic, which you can find on Amazon. I'd also encourage you to check out my website at travelsinmusic.com where you can find show notes and links to all the music you heard in today's episode and everything we talked about. I'm working hard to, uh, to improve the site in the coming weeks to add more content, to add more interesting things and links and uh, articles of all sorts. So be sure to go to travelsinmusic.com. Another quick reminder, actually two quick reminders. One is that uh, we are on a new publishing schedule now, so episodes will be coming out once a week every Thursday, and they'll be up and ready by Thursday morning at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, that's 8 a.m. And I'd also like to remind you that the best way to show your support for the show, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like me to keep making them and you'd like to hear more of them, please go to iTunes and be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review. Once again, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me today. And remember, as always, that life is short, so why not choose to enjoy it? Take care, and I'll talk to you again next week.